You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. What we've seen over the last several years is that you know credentials are increasingly being used as the point of entry into corporate networks, uh, which then leads to really large ransomware incidents. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Keith Jarvis, senior security researcher at SecureWorks, joins us to talk about stealers and trackers. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we have a bit of follow-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want me to read this? Oh, sure. That's just, uh, this would be great. All right. So, uh, a listener named Ron writes in and says, Hey, gentlemen, I've been a longtime listener and constant learner from your show. I teach military members about personal cybersecurity and how to be safer on the Internet. I cite your show as a top pick for those wanting to start out in digital privacy and security and zero regrets. Every week I'm given new and heavy-hitting examples of how bad things can get, (laughs) but I leave each show feeling somehow better about our chances to overcome them. Well, thank you, Ron. That's That's very kind kind words, Ron. Anyway, another top pick I push on my students is a book by Carrie Parker called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Have you heard of it? Have you heard of it? I have not. Me neither. (laughs) Ron says, let me throw in here that I am in no way affiliated with the author or his work, but in my library of books on internet safety and security, this one happens to be the most accessible, in my opinion, for newcomers to the realm, and much of what you discuss is covered too. Uh, He says, thanks in advance, and please keep doing what you do. It makes my job easier. So I looked up this book on Amazon, uh, and... uh, Kerry Parker is about to come out with a fifth edition of this book. Oh, wow. So uh, I didn't, I wanted, I wanted to just go out and buy it. But mm-hmm. if, if I see that he's going to buy a, or going to come out with a fifth edition, I might hold off until that comes out. Okay. Uh, the library system around here does not have it. So mm. I couldn't just go and read it for free at the library, like some kind of, <laughs> like some kind of software pirate. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Uh <laughs> Uh, you know, it's um, it's I, I, I kind of always feel that way when I read a book at the library. Like I'm not paying the author to do it. Do, you know, <laughs> they still. I mean, the book still gets sold. You're right, right. Uh, but I, but I, I still go to the library. It doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. And frequently, I do buy the books. Yeah. Um, not that I need to justify that. I don't know why I feel like I do. But anyway, <laughs> there's no, there's no guilt or shame in using your public library, Joe. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a great place. Great resource. Um, I think we might. We should probably reach out to Kerry uh, Parker, see if we can get him on the show. Yeah. It would be a great idea. Yeah, that is a great idea. We'll we'll do it. I, I like the idea of dragons also. Right. I, I think about sometimes, I know you and I have discussed this in the past, that I like the metaphor of, you know, the little town below the mountain and up on the mountain there's a dragon. Right. And the town has to decide, you know, do we kill the dragon or are we okay with the dragon every now and then flying down from the mountain and picking somebody off t- to eat? Right. You know, and that's a decision sometimes you have to make, mm-hmm. you know? And so uh, I, I like that. I'm intrigued by the metaphor, so. Yeah, it's just the same as the skill and Charybdis problem, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, Ron, thank you for writing in. We do appreciate it, and uh, we will check out that book. Again, it's called Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. 
All right, Joe, uh, let's jump into our stories this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, And my story this week comes from uh, ISMS Online, uh, which I believe stands for Information Security Management Services Online. This is an organization that provides um, uh, certifications and helps uh, organizations make sure that they're following regulations and so on and so forth. Uh, But they also have a blog section here, and there's an article here written by Dan Raywood, and it's titled Password Managers, A Work in Progress Despite Popularity. Yeah. And I think this is sort of triggered by uh, some of the, shall we say, challenges that some Mm -hmm. of the password management companies have had as of late. Right. Uh, I think most famously LastPass. Yes. um, Who's had a... Had a breach. Had a a breach and sort of, uh, I don't know, cascading isn't quite the right word. A, A series of revelations that have come... From that breach that have sort of trickled out about the seriousness of that breach and the degree to which that breach is an issue. Um, it's uncovered uh, perhaps some shortcomings in some of the ways that LastPass handled some of their encryption, huh. uh, what they chose to encrypt or didn't encrypt, um, the amount of encryption that your files had applied to them, and some of it, I believe, depended on how long you've had a LastPass account. <laughs> like, huh. you know, they, so they never upgraded the encryption. Over time. Yes, yes, right, exactly. So so in a way, they did upgrade the encryption over time, but they didn't retroactively go back and re-encrypt stuff from people from the old, the, you know, the old customers who had originally come on board when they were using a lower level of encryption. Right, right. Which so, if the customer is still using the product, there's a fairly standardized way of going about updating the encryption. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, it's it's the same with pa- uh, hashing algorithms. Uh, okay. The, the customer has to log in for a hashing algorithm. They have to use, the, you know, if you're going to upgrade your hashing algorithm, then you, in in these hashes, there's a little indicator of what it, algorithm was used to hash it. Yeah. So if you see that that's out of date, then you check it with the old algorithm. And when it matches, you rehash it with the new algorithm and just put it back in the system. Mm. And that's how you that's how you do it. And the same thing can be done with with the encryption on these devices. But the user does have to log in, uh, depending on the level of encryption that these that these companies have. And the LastPass always claimed that you were the only person that could decrypt your data. Correct. Right. Correct. So if if they can't decrypt it, they can't do this unless you log in. Right. Right. And I think uh, they're recommending one of the things you do is change your master password right. to something complex and long, and I think that triggers the the re-encryption uh, of everything. So that's... Yeah, but that shouldn't be necessary. You should just be able to re-encrypt it just by them using the, using the service again. Yeah. So the fundamental question that this article asks is, are password managers to be trusted? And uh, I wanted to put that question in front of you here, Joe. Yeah. What do you think? That's a good question. Well, this, yeah, we, we talked about that. We've We've addressed this risk before mm-hmm. um, that you are you are putting all your fish uh, or what is it, all your eggs. That's the the analogy. All your eggs in one basket, <laughs> right? right? Uh, but it's a pretty good basket. So, um, you know, it, it, I don't know. Do you use LastPass or OnePassword? We have, we have can, used LastPass. Yes. Uh, can you protect that with a multi-factor authentication, like a like a FIDO key or something? Yes, and I so, do. Okay, so if you if you do that. These guys are never going to break whatever was encrypted on that. They're just not going to have the information. Even with all the brute forcing in the world, they're just never going to be able to get uh, get through that. So that data is pretty safe. But the question then is, what was encrypted? Well, everything should have been encrypted, but 
Uh, <laughs> turns out. Turns out not. <laughs> right. So, right. I mean, there are, there are uh, personal solutions. I, I still don't like the idea of browser-based uh, password managers. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft has a password manager. Google now has a password manager, but it's uh, fairly integrated with the Chrome browser, so I'm not sure how much I like it. Firefox has one built into it. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's better than it ever was, but you're still, um, you're still storing your data in the browser. Uh, yeah, Apple has one. Apple has one. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Microsoft's is actually separate. It's part of an application called Microsoft Authenticator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, I, I feel better about that one. But I've started using uh, KeePass uh, because it runs on Linux and Windows. As I think there might even be a, a, an Apple version for it. Okay. Uh, but it uh, I, I'm moving away from uh, password safe because there's no Linux based implementation that lets you use a YubiKey. Okay. Uh, so I use the YubiKey on my uh, my local, on my Windows machine, but when I need to move the data or when I need to put this on a Linux machine, I need to, to take that protection off of it. Uh, and since I store that in the cloud, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> so, right. but KeePass lets me do everything and it's open source and free. Uh, but then I have to manage the, uh, the passwords and I'm already running into an issue where I've got databases out of sync. Uh, mm. I, I am, I am okay with this because, uh, it's number one, it's free and I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number okay. two, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that, uh, that, this is this kind of a problem is not going to happen. This LastPass problem is not going to happen with KeePass. Mm-hmm. Even if the bad guys do get my file, it is completely encrypted with the algorithm. The entire file is encrypted, uh, and they're going to need my YubiKey to open it. Um, yeah, which is they're going to have to physically access me. And at that point in time, I have a different set of problems. I wonder with if the the incident that LastPass has gone through here, and and I I, I guess it's. It's better to say the in, the incident that LastPass's users have gone through right. here. Uh, is that a f- uh, an indication that maybe uh, something that is open source is better because, or at least to be considered, because uh, that would have the scrutiny right. of people looking at it. I think a lot of LastPass users were surprised after this breach to find out that their when their vaults were stolen that not everything in the vault was encrypted. Right. And if this had been an open source project, perhaps it would have had a lot of eyes on it and, and that would have been known ahead of time. Yeah, that's that's the argument, the common argument that open source advocates put forward. Yeah. Um, but one of the big problems is that you really do need to have those eyes put on it. Right, right. Uh, and that's and not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. Yeah. There have been... Um, there have been eyes on crypto products in the past. Like, for example, I think Matt Green was part of this effort when Veracrypt uh, was still around. Was it? No, it was TrueCrypt, the, the predecessor to Veracrypt. Hmm. Um, they, they did an analysis on, on TrueCrypt and found that it was, uh, that it, the cryptography was implemented well. Mm-hmm. Uh, TrueCrypt eventually shut down and somebody picked up the, the code and, and, implemented Veracrypt with stronger encryption. Hmm. Uh, so that's that's a way to encrypt files on your hard drive, by the way. Okay. So if you need a uh, an encrypted volume, a place to store data, like all my tax data is stored in a Veracrypt volume. Right. Uh, right. So that if somebody does get access to my computer, uh, if as long as I don't have that file opened as a as a hard drive on my computer, they will never get that information out because mm-hmm. the the uh, they'd have to know the the very long password 
that I use to store that. And that is stored in my password manager, which is protected with my YubiKey. So it's going to be very difficult for them to get in. <laughs> good luck to you. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm an outlier, I should say, in this. Um, <laughs> you, you sure are, Joe. <laughs> right. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly paranoid about, about having my data breached. I, I, I know how to use the encryption, the encryption products. Not everybody does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not something you just, there is a learning curve. It's not much of a learning curve. For you have that, that combination of paranoia and technical know-how right. that, that leads you down pathways that most are, are not willing to tread. Right. You're like, I'm not, I'm not following Joe down that dark, dark road. Right. It's, right. <laughs> well, so a couple other things come to mind here for me. Um, first of all, I wonder if we are moving away from this altogether. You know, it seems to me like the momentum is toward ultimately doing away with usernames and passwords. Right. Yeah, it's just going to some kind of uh, public key, private key system. Right. So some alternative Mm -hmm. uh, that uses other ways to get to log into the biometric or who knows. But uh, that seems to be the direction that people want to go in. And I think there's good, many, many good reasons for that. So I wonder if this is uh, just something to, uh, we're biding our time with. You yeah. Know, in the meantime, it's, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the death of passwords since you and I have been on this show and on the Cyberwire together. Yeah. So true. Um, and it still hasn't happened yet. It. I think it is coming. I think it is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you're always. I think you're still going to need a password. It's just that all these other layers on top are are going to be uh, essentially better. Mm-hmm. And that password is still going to offer you some level of protection, especially if it's a good strong password. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just makes it harder. Uh, but really, these these additional features are going to make it much harder. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the benefit's going to come in. Yeah, and I, and I think also one thing this article points out is that this is very much about risk management. It is. It's not an all-or-nothing thing. There's, right. There's no 100% solution here. It's Correct. about... Um, this article points out that for many people, having a notebook in your kitchen drawer with a pencil and paper, you know, yeah. that may be the best word, the best password manager for you. It, it might be. And people laugh at that, you know, but in that, now in order for a malicious actor to get access to your passwords, they have to physically break into your house. That's a much bigger risk for someone to take. Right. Um, you know, and if you're just a regular guy like you or me, that nobody's going to take that take that risk for it, for right, it. Right? right. But if you're, you know, maybe if you're a higher, a high up official in some government agency, then that's not, that's your risk model. And, and you, somebody might break into your house. So you don't do that. Right. You have to assess your own risk model. It's, it's, I, I often say this, that security is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cryptographers tend to think of security in a very binary way. Right? Yeah. Either it's secure or it's not. If yeah. I can break it, it's not secure. No matter what I have to do, it's if if it's if it's broken, it's broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I and I understand wh- what they're talking about because they're they're thinking about the mathematic pro- mathematic problems, the math behind everything. Yeah, uh, and they're correct. They're, they're correct. But if you move yourself in a more secure direction, that's better. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know you can't really quantify that. I mean, you you can say that one is better than the other. Like we all often say that uh, that even a an SMS. Uh, multi-factor authentication code texted to you is better than nothing. Right. And it is. Uh, but too many people go, well, that's no good. It's not not secure at all. And they're correct, but it's still better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, is it fair to say that we're still on uh, Team Password Manager? The- I am still on Team Password <laughs> Manager, yeah. I am too. I am too. I, I think it's still definitely better. I think it's better to have a password manager than to not have a password right. manager for many, many reasons, as yep. we've outlined here. And, so. you know, and this this is not something that that is that has happened to me because I'm not a LastPass customer. I'm uh, I use the open source products, mm-hmm. uh, but these open source products have in the past been targeted uh, by by malware mm-hmm. to deliver you know uh, data data exfiltration products that can deliver the uh, deliver the the unencrypted safe out or right. the encrypted safe rather the encrypted the encrypted file out. Uh, so you know it's out there. Yeah, it's out there. Yeah. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, once again, I have two stories. Uh, the first story is going to make you mad, and the second story is going to make you laugh. <laughs> okay. And, I, and I'm not proud well, of the I'll first. I'll be the judge of that. Right. <laughs> I'm not proud of the first story coming from this source, but it comes from TMZ. Oh, right. Okay. So it's at the top of your list of, uh, of in your browser bookmarks. This it where you check is, in? Dave. I, I, I'm very concerned <laughs> about, about all the news and sports. And, sure, sure. And hip-hop and uh, photos and tour. I'm just reading. The titles across the top, the menu across okay. the top. <laughs> okay. So uh, this is a story about a 19-year-old TikToker by the name of Madison Russo, hmm. who has been picked up by her local police department in Iowa because she was on TikTok telling people that she has had cancer, oh. and not just any cancer, but three different diagnoses, diagnoses, diagnosis, yeah, diagnoses. Uh, she said she had leukemia. Then she had pancreatic cancer, and then she had a tumor the size of a football. Oh. And she had used TikTok as a way to raise money through GoFundMe and had gotten 439 people to give her $37,000. Wow. Uh, somebody called the police and said, I don't, I don't, this seems a little bit fishy, and the police swung around. Uh, and they found when they, when they, Went into her house. They found all kinds of things just laying around the house, like uh, like oxygen tubes, uh, a pill for pills for an anti nausea medication that that they say were just uh, they weren't prescribed to her. They were prescribed to somebody else, but she was using them as props. Oh. Um, here's a picture, Dave. Uh, here she is with uh, with the tube in her nose and uh, looking smiling and looking good. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, she's talking. She has also what looks like a uh, one of those drug injection lines that they put in your chest when you're in the hospital. Right, right, right. Uh, I think this picture was just taken in her apartment. So she did not have cancer. She does she not have does cancer. She does not have cancer. She's fine. Uh, they subpoenaed her medical records as well and oh. found that she had no diagnosis of cancer. Wow. So uh, so did she get charged with fraud? She gets charged with theft is what they charged her oh, with. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, a simple charity scam. Right. Um, I guess this is tough because we all see these sorts of things, especially if you're on social media and given, uh, for our international listeners, given the sad state of affairs of the U.S. healthcare system, it's pretty common these days to see these sort of GoFundMe campaigns for folks who have outstripped their health insurance or need help with funding. And and so you see these things and sometimes they'll pull your heartstrings and you'll say, well, there's some, someone maybe I want to give some money to. Right. But it's hard to say, you know, I'd like to give you some money, but first I'm going to need some verification. Right. Yeah. You can't (laughs) say that. You don't want to say prove it. Right. Uh, And then that's exactly what this 
woman was taking advantage of. I exactly. Suppose. And uh, well, she's gonna. Uh, she could face up to ten years in prison for this. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's good that she's been stopped. Uh, the people that sent her money are probably out the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they're going to get that back. Uh, but you know, be mindful of who you're giving money to online. The, the, the charity scams are are out there, and they they play on your on your on your emotions. Yeah, uh, it's a trigger that a lot of us have. Uh, I feel bad for that person. Right. Uh, generally, uh, you know, I, I generally don't give to these kind of things. I have in the past when somebody said, "Hey, I know this guy, yeah. and he's going through this, and this is terrible." I've said, "Okay, I'll, I'll send him some money." Yeah. Uh, but you know, the person I knew telling me this was somebody I trusted. Right. Uh, right. And personally asked me to to donate some money, and I, I donated a little bit of money. And if they scam me out of the twenty bucks I gave them, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. you got me. Right. Um. You know, it doesn't really hurt. Yeah, it's hard to uh, to not take on a, a certain amount of cynicism in the face of these sorts of things. You know, you to to, to still be open to to, to giving right. uh, for the folks who legitimately need it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. All right. Well, what's your other story, Joe? Well, my other story is uh, comes from Petapixel, and it comes from Pasala Bandara, hmm. um, and the title is. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the title, but the, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's about the U S Marines and the U S army. Okay. Uh, apparently the, uh, the U S army set up a, uh, a camera system that was powered by AI image processing software okay. to monitor an area. And then they, uh, they, so like a security camera, so, like a security camera. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then they said to a group of Marines, uh, I think it was eight Marines. They said, mm-hmm. Let's see if you guys can get through this. Hmm. And uh, Dave, not a single Marine got detected. They ha- all they had to do was touch a robot. You know, that was the, the objective of the exercise was to get in there and touch a robot. So at the center of this area, there's a robot. Right. And, it, okay. So, so they like spent tag. They spent six, <laughs> six days. Right. It's like tag. Yeah. Six days training the AI. And then uh, the Marines went in. Uh, all eight of them got, got through. One pair of Marines did somersaults for 300 meters and got through because the AI didn't recognize them as people coming in. Oh, because uh, of the movement. So the AI thought, oh, here comes a, some tumbleweeds or something. Right. Nothing nothing to be concerned nothing about. To be, they, they didn't recognize them as humans. Okay. Uh, two Marines successfully evaded the camera by hiding in a cardboard box, <laughs> which is a strategy they learned from a video game called Metal Gear Solid. Oh. And... Uh, this this is a there's a great quote in here. You could hear them giggling the whole time. <laughs> so, so 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 now the Marines are issuing tactical cardboard boxes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Another Marine field stripped a fir tree and walked field like stripped. a fir tree. Yeah, field stripped. That's, that's what they used to do with uh, cigarettes. When, uh-huh. you were tearing, when you were uh, smoking in, in the field, you'd tear your cigarette apart. That's field stripping. But this okay. guy field stripped a, uh, a, a fir tree and then walked in, and the, the AI camera didn't notice anything. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so I think this is, this is great. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's simple tricks. Um, this is from a forthcoming book. Uh, and, oh, by the way, this came from Rob, uh, listener Rob, who sent this to us. Okay. And I want to thank Rob for <laughs> sending this you, in, because this is hilarious. <laughs> it's like something out of an old uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like Wiley the Coyote, Coyote with the yeah. bush? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just sneaking in. No one to see here. The, the bush. Ah, oh, that's hilarious. 
All right. Well, those are our stories for this week, and uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Tim, who says, Hey, Dave and Joe, I got this really interesting scam email sent to an address I no longer use. Uh, it made it past the spam filters probably because it is actually from PayPal. It's a unique twist on the classic send off an invoice and hope they pay it scam that I've never seen before. Hmm. Uh, what they've done here is send an invoice as though they were Coinbase, which of course they are not. Hmm. Uh, after verifying that it was indeed a legitimate PayPal link with no weird redirectors or anything in the URL, I opened a simplified version of the URL on the VPN and in a sandbox browser, and didn't it did indeed resolve to a legitimate PayPal invoice. Uh, so it it's again we're seeing this. This happens a lot where you can get on PayPal and just send anybody an invoice, okay, and and tell them pay me through PayPal. But what these guys have done here is a little bit different than that. Okay. So why don't you, this is a, it, it looks like a, an invoice from Coinbase. Mm-hmm. And it says, dear customer, you sent a payment of $479 to Coinbase Corporation. If you did not make this payment or to cancel this transaction, please call our help desk number. Cancellation after 24 hours from this email won't be valid for the refund. Have a great day. PayPal help desk. Right. And then they give you a, a phone number, yeah. right? And that's the scam here. They're trying to get you to call the phone number. And then I'll bet they're going to try to get access to your Coinbase account if you have one. Oh. So Coinbase is where you keep uh, cryptocurrency. It's a cryptocurrency exchange. I see. So if I'm a scammer and I want to scam a bunch of people out of their cryptocurrency, I'm going to go, where do people keep their cryptocurrency? Well, they keep some of them keep them in exchanges. I'm going to send out a bunch of emails looking like I'm Coinbase about to bill somebody and get them to call me. Then I'm going to have them install the remote access software on their computer. And then I'm going to get access to the Coinbase. And then I'm just going to transfer all the, all the cryptocurrency to my wallets. Hmm. And that's going to be the game. That's the end of it. Hmm. Uh, you will not get that back. There is no regulation or anything to stop it from happening. Yeah. It's interesting that they're, they're saying uh, in this email, it's it, they want you to call what they're claiming is the PayPal help desk. Yeah. Which, of course, it isn't. That's right. But I bet you if you call, they'll answer the phone and say, PayPal help desk. Yep. Hmm. I'm sure, 100% sure that's the case. So do you think they're going after your PayPal account, your Coinbase account, or both? My my thinking is they're going at, well, probably both. They might be going after both. Yeah. Uh, but my thinking initially is they're going after Coinbase. Oh. That's because that's where people keep their resources, keep a lot of resources. Right, right. What could PayPal be doing to help tamp down this sort of thing? I mean, if it's if it's widespread like this, I, I, I'm looking on this for a place to report this as uh, as fraud. Right. There's um there's no place to do that. Yeah, it does say <laughs> at the bottom. Don't know this seller. You can. Uh, oh, there's a contact, the contact us button. Us, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so I there suppose is. there is a way to report it. Yeah. I don't know how effective that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the problem with these companies is they are large companies operating with the smallest possible staff they can afford to operate with. Right. And, uh, you know, like I say often, when you're dealing with these companies, it's like screaming into the void. Yeah. Um, you know what, Joe? I need to make up T-shirts that say, we can't do that at scale. Right. <laughs> right. And on the back it says, then don't do it. Right. Right. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you, Tim, for sending that in. Uh, Tim is a regular contributor to this show and other shows as well. So friend of the show, Tim, sent this in. We do appreciate it. Uh, and again, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Keith Jarvis. He is a senior security researcher at SecureWorks. And we were talking about info stealers and trackers. Here's my conversation with Keith Jarvis. Right, so over the last several years, we've really seen this particular way of getting into networks sort of you know, explode, right? So info stealers, stealing credentials, nothing really new there that's been with us for decades. Um, but there's just uh, the ecosystem is really flush with options for threat actors to go in and buy info stealers uh, that steal essentially everything off of a computer. Uh, they can choose you know, one that's hosted uh, by the threat actors um, or one that they host themselves. Um, really, they, they go from very basic up to, to advanced capabilities. And what we've seen from SecureWorks perspective over the last several years as the, is that you know, credentials are increasingly being used as the point of entry into corporate networks, uh, which then leads to really large ransomware incidents. Can you walk us through the, the typical life cycle of something like this with an info stealer? I mean, how, how does one find themselves victim of it? And then ultimately, how do the credentials end up for sale? Right. So again, there's so many of these uh, info stealers that are for sale and there's so many customers. Really, how you end up getting one is basically how you get anything. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. so many people involved with this. It may come in through a spam email. It may come in through... Uh, pirated software that's been laden with one of these info stealers. Uh, somebody may break into your network through other means, and then they also want to capture credentials from the computers that they've gotten access to. So they'll drop one of these info stealers on there. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that these are getting into uh, corporate networks. Um, and then from there, it, it's sort of like potluck what happens to your, your, your stolen credentials. Some of these threat actors are their business model is to steal credentials and then to sell them on the open market and try to make money that way, not by actually monetizing the machines they broke into, but basically just a smash and grab operation where they, they get stuff and then they bundle it and then they sell it online. From there, on those marketplaces where that data is sold, really, it's, it's anyone's guess who's going to actually end up purchasing that lot. Um, sometimes it's going to pe- be people looking for you know, cryptocurrency, uh, maybe people looking for infrastructure to, to run another operation. Uh, but oftentimes we've seen it's going to be somebody who wants to break into a corporate network and distribute ransomware throughout that network. Now, one of the things that I see you all, you all um, highlighted was uh, the ability for folks to, to go on to one of these markets and, and basically make a request to, to say, these are the types of things I'm interested in. Yeah, and that's kind of a, a new feature. There, there's a place called Russian Market that introduced that in October, um, the ability to say, hey, I have a, a specific interest in this platform or this website, so I'm going to put that out there as a, as a sort of pre-sale request. And then hopefully a vendor on that website is going to say, oh, this person wants this domain for this amount of money, so I'm going to go hunt for that. In the past, it's usually been they distribute these info stealers uh, in mass, and then 
basically what you might typically expect to find on a computer, Gmail addresses, um, you know, when, SF, when SCP credentials, uh, these sorts of things. That's what comes back into what they call the logs. And, and then those are sort of bundled up and sold. And you basically, what's, what's for sale is, is what they're providing, right? You don't, you don't get any choice into what, what they've actually compromised. But with this, you know, you can say, oh, I want to get into some major e-commerce platform, or I know that software vendor uses this internal administrative interface. So I'm going to provide the URL as a mask and, and see where I can get those specific types of credentials that I can use in a particular type of intrusion. What about at the high end? As you, you mentioned here, folks who want specific access to, let's say, a Fortune 500 company or something like that, is that available as well? Yeah, so usually with the marketplaces, that's really you're working in bulk data, um, but there's an entire cottage industry of what we call initial access brokers, the people who get into the network first and then they're looking to sell that access. Um, they don't want to do the rest of the intrusion. Uh, so a lot of that um, happens um, on places like Telegram or on the underground forums where they'll say, I have access to a Fortune 50 company in the U.S. and has X amount of revenue. Uh, I'm selling this for $15,000 or it may be something much less um, you know, interesting than that. You know, I, I have a, a Japanese company with, with $10 million in revenue and here's, here's access for $200. Um, so that's usually where they've identified what they think is high value and they know that they can get more money out of selling that than just bundling it with everybody else's credentials. One of the things that strikes me is the professionalism that's going on behind the scenes here. I mean, these... Am I right that these organizations really, they're set up like legitimate businesses? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, especially with the, these markets over the last four or five years, they, they, there was nothing really like this um, just, just that long ago. This is kind of, I think, the, the credit card theft uh, that was rampant a number of years ago. These sort of shops popped up to service that market, stolen credit cards, and this is sort of the continuum of that because it's increasingly difficult to monetize stolen payment cards. So what we saw as innovation, you know, a number of years ago in that space has now moved over to credentials. And you're right, these are all very automated, slick platforms for, for just going in and really quickly searching for what you want um, that day and then buying it. Um, and again, now requesting, you know, specific bespoke intrusions um, based on, you know, a mask or something like that. So it's really sort of mechanized and, and professionalized over the last several years, um, and it makes it really easy, and it lowers the bar for certain threat actors to really get into this game. And what interest are you all seeing, if any, from law enforcement to to monitor this and try to tamp down on it? Yeah, so it's a, it's an increasingly prevalent way of getting into corporate networks uh, from our telemetry over the last several years. It's definitely on law enforcement's radar here in the United States and abroad in the UK, et cetera. Um, I don't know specifically what they're, what they're trying to do. I know they've gone after payment card forums and marketplaces. They've just recently gone after DDoS booting services. Uh, one imagines that they're, they're teeing something up for these particular types of markets, but uh, we know that uh, justice works very slowly, um, so I'm not sure when that's going to actually happen, but uh, I'm assured that it's it's a priority for those groups. So what are your recommendations then for organizations who want to best protect themselves here? What sort of things should they put in place? 
Right. So, so good uh, security controls, you know, at the perimeter, preventing spam emails from getting in, um, preventing people from downloading stuff while browsing the web. Um, but uh, something is going to get through eventually. So having really good telemetry and visibility into your endpoints to see when one of these info stealers lands that you can identify it and quarantine that machine as soon as possible. And then after that, don't just image the machine and sort of go on about your business. You really have to say, okay, this machine has been completely harvested of all the private information that was on it. And that's going to be a mixture of uh, data that belonged to the individual that was using that machine and also probably a lot of corporate secrets. So you really have to do an accounting of what was stolen there and to do password resets um, to, to help that that individual, you know, reset the, the things in their own personal life, their banking details and stuff like that, uh, because you can't just assume because you wipe the malware that it's, it's no longer a threat. And I think also, obviously, multi-factor authentication, uh, the more critical assets you can put that in front of, um, the better prepared you are going to be when, when one of these things does happen and somebody does try and come back with credentials and get in. Yeah, I mean, is that really the key for the, the consumer to, to have good uh, password hygiene? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as we're asking people to, to get better about their hygiene, uh, they're forgetting their passwords. So they're storing them in the browser. They're storing them in password managers, which is you know nominally a, a good thing. But that also means that there's a giant cache of credentials on every machine uh, in the world now uh, where the software comes in and steals it. Uh, so it's kind of a, a mixed blessing. Um, I, I think it's a net positive that we're moving people towards that. But this is kind of one of the downsides of that is that People are storing these things. Uh, you're not in text files and Excel spreadsheets anymore, uh, but in proper password managers. But um, still, it, it, it is a, a concern. Where do you suppose we're headed here? You know, you're, you're mentioning that uh, the, the folks who previously had been working in credit cards, stolen credit cards, have moved on to this. I mean, is there a, a natural evolution that's going on here as uh, cat and mouse? No, I think we're in the full swing of this particular era of, uh, you know, credential thefts. Um, I think the increasing adoption of MFA and, and especially, especially, you know, advanced options with MFA. So like with Microsoft 365, you can get a push notification. And we know that uh, attackers are spamming those push notifications and just getting through anyway. They've introduced number matching where you have to match a number with the actual prompt uh, that, pre- that prevents that type of attack. The same with the standard one-time codes, which can be intercepted and then replayed, you know, within a a 30-second window. So people are moving past that, and that's really what's going to crush this particular ecosystem. But we know that's sort of a lagging indicator. There's always going to be the the top 1% of of security places that can can push that out first, um, and everyone else is going to lag behind. So I think we're in for this particular type of attack for, for a number of years to come. Joe, what do you think? Interesting interview. Info stealers can take everything, but I think credentials are really what they're after the most. Mm. Uh, because once they get the credentials, they can get access. Uh, an info stealer is just software, and Keith was talking about how how advanced these software packages can be, and how. Uh, but still, they're just going to do what they're told. Right. A malicious actor with access to your network is much more dangerous than than the software. Oh. They're going to you know, have that, you know, like the, they're, they're not going to be distracted by the, they're not going to, they're going to look, Hey, that's a person under a box. Right. <laughs> right. right, the, right. You know, the software may not, 
something may escape software's notice, but mm-hmm. not a human. A human's going to be looking around, taking notice, and stealing all the data they can. Yeah, so a human has a adaptive curiosity. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Hmm. Uh, there are tons of vectors for this stuff to get into your network, which is just terrible. <laughs> but and Keith talks about, you know, the, the the spam emails and all that, you know, phishing emails. Yeah. And then all the other vectors as well, fake tech support phone calls. Uh, anything. Uh, think about the threat model where someone is selling access to your na- to your network. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes when I think about penetration into a network, I think that this is more like a personal op- operation. Like hmm. the, the first guy, the, the, there's somebody out there that wants to get into the network. So what do they do? They they go in and they 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 get access. And now that they've got access, they go up to the next thing and they go, okay, now we got to spread through the network. And now we then we've got to finally do something to monetize this. Right. But it's interesting to me that there's like a marketplace for these initial access people. These are guys that just go, can I get in here? Yes, I can. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm in. I'm done. Let me me cash out here. Let me monetize just the access part. Right. You know, I haven't done anything uh, that would draw the attention of law enforcement. Let somebody else take that risk. Right. So I'm just going to get some, uh, you know, get some money from, from somebody that's going to do something bad. And, I, you know, the, the whole marketplace is, is fascinating to me. Um, but then what you've got to think about is what's the malicious actor, the guy that's actually going to do the damage? What, is that, what does that person look like? Hmm. They are somebody out to, to uh, just make money off of you, right? Mm-hmm. They don't care how it is. They're, they're willing to pay for the access, and they're looking to do as much damage as they can to maximize their profits. Right. So the—, the the paradigm has to be uh, that you're, while you're looking for the initial access person, that's not the same guy that's going to come in and and do the and you know, wreak havoc on your network. It's just some some person that's good at getting initial access. Mm-hmm. And you've got to think of it like the marketplace and and the 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 organization that these that these companies have. You and I, you and I have been talking about the development of this organization, and it's been absolutely one of the most fascinating things to watch over time. Yeah. How these guys have become specialized. It's uh, like an Ocean's Eleven team. Right, you know, exactly. Each, each person has their specialty. You got the safe cracker. You got the right. <laughs> social I, engineer. You got I was the thinking Henry Ford and uh, specialization, right? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, sure. When he made cars affordable by just having people do small pieces. Now this this malicious activity can be done at scale because – People can do their parts very quickly, right? And move it down the the cyber off uh, the cyber assembly line. Yeah. Uh, access prices are interesting too. I, Keith provides examples from two hundred to fifteen thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. You know, I don't want to take the time to learn how to hack. I just want to get access, and I'm pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. So here's it's it's all still just basically commerce. It's a black market, but it's a market, right? One of the things that Keith says it's uh, really important is you can't just wipe the machine and move on. That a lot of things have already happened. You've already suffered a data breach when there's uh, an information stealer on a computer. You can't when you have a malware incident that can't just be well. We'll just wipe the computer and that's it. We're done. Um, <laughs> and I like what Keith says. You got to tell the user. Do you have any personal information on here? Is any of your banking information on here? You better change all of that mm-hmm. because you've been compromised too. Um, and Usually the user is the one who initiated the activity that got the uh, the malicious software on there in the first place. Uh, 
principle of least privilege is is a pretty good uh, pretty good way to go about that and, and limiting that risk. Make sure that the user, if the user doesn't need to have administrative access to the machine uh, or install software, then that user shouldn't have those permissions on your hardware. Right. Um, again, we hear multi-factor authentication. Yeah. And uh, still, password managers are good. Uh, protect them with multi-factor authentication too. But we've already talked about that in your story a lot today. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, and again, our thanks to Keith Jarvis from SecureWorks for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 